0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival on this gloriously sunny day, which is a a rarity for us. Uh, And we're delighted to welcome uh, Josephine Hart here and uh, Joanna David and Dan Stevens to read uh, and talk about the book Catching Life by the Throat, which will be available after the event in the signing tent just next door if you go out and go write and write again. And also, you can talk to them more about the project. There is the book here which has a cd in the back and a full cd as well there endeth the advert
1: there beautifully done thank you so much well good evening ladies and gentlemen and thank you so much for coming in on such a glorious evening i i quite agree it's a great dedication to poetry that you're here and we appreciate it um Much gratitude uh, to Anne Harrod Wood for her dedicated support, as always, in organizing these events. As ever in presenting these evenings, I am reliant on the learning of others. This evening, biographies by Iris Riga, Francois Morwan, Fiona McCarthy have been essential. Now, the evening is based on a series of readings at the British Library, where for the past three years, actors have read for us, for no fee, no expenses, the poetry of our greatest writers, which has led, with the cooperation of the British Library and that of Lenny Goodings at Farago Publications, to the publication last year of the book, Catching Life by the Throat, How to Read Poetry and Why?, which accompanied by a CD, which is actually in the book. The Poetry of Auden is read by Rafe Fines, Dickinson by Juliet Stevenson, Eliot by Edward Fox, Ian McDermott, and Helen McCrory. Kipling by Roger Moore, Larkin by Harold Pinter, Marianne Moore by Elizabeth McGovern, Plath by Harriet Walter, Yeats by Bob Geldof and Sinead Cusack. The book has been distributed free of charge to every school teaching between, between 12 and 18-year-olds. We now plan a second book, also to be funded into schools, and in spring, Norton Publications will publish in New York. Now, why this approach? Poetry is a trinity of sound, sense and sensibility, and the sound of sense and what Robert Frost called the sense of sound is lost unless we hear it, language caught alive. Seamus Heaney, as an undergraduate at Queen's, found that on hearing Eliot's four quartets read aloud by the actor Robert Spate, What had been perplexing when sight read for meaning only was hypnotic when read aloud. Yeats in his 70s said that he'd spent his life clearing out of poetry every phrase written for the eye alone and bringing all back to syntax which is for the ear alone. Our readers this evening are Joanna David and Dan Stevens. Over her career, Joanna David has given performances of such intelligence, each so perfectly judged, that whether in Wild, Eliot, Shaw, Chekhov or in modern theatre, Joanna gets it right. All the time, every time. <laughs> it is true. She has just finished a hugely successful run in the West End in John Mortimer's Voyage Around My Father with Derek Jacobi, which moved from the Donmar warehouse, and she will shortly, in autumn, star in a new BBC comedy, Never Better. Dan Stevens, since his astonishing debut in The Line of Beauty, based on Alan Hollingsworth's award-winning novel, has been nominated for the Ian Charlson Award for As You Like It, has starred with Judy Dench in Hay Fever, stars in the new Andrew Davies BBC adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, and, I have just heard, will play Nicky, which is the part of a lifetime in Peter Hall's planned production of Noel Coward's The Vortex. I can't thank them enough, and I owe them so much. Finally, and I hope you will not regard this in any way as impertinent, I would ask you not to applaud until the end of the evening. To Byron. Byron. Byronic. We all know what it means. We think of the poetry, of course. We also think of the man. And that is central to the myth, which inspired painters, Delacroix, musicians, Berlioz, writers, Pushkin, Goethe, who, according to the American critic Harold Bloom, developed a kind of infatuation with Byron the Brontes, most particularly Emily. No poet and few men have put more effort into the creation of image than Byron, who, according to T.S. Eliot, invented himself. And, Eliot wrote, it is only the self that he invented that he understood perfectly. Lord Byron, wrote "Stendhal was the unique object of his own attention. Well, he was worth it. Byron arrived on the 22nd of January, 1788, dramatically. He was born with a coal over his head and wasted leg muscles, sometimes erroneously described as a club foot, in Holly Street, London, to Catherine Gordon, a young Scots heiress, and to mad Jack Byron, a soldier, a widower, father of Augusta, who lost two matrimonial fortunes, and very quickly." He died three years after Byron's birth, and the family moved to Aberdeen, where Byron was known as Mrs. Byron's crooked devil, a cruel reference to his leg. Byron the child was almost pathologically shy, counting under his breath one, two, three, when introduced to someone new, particularly a female. Yet he became one of the great seducers of his time, both of women and men. Harold Nicholson said of him, his soul was male, his mind female. Two obsessions in youth, one at nine, Mary Duff, the other at 15-16, Mary Chorth, were disturbing to everyone in their chaste intensity. Dante says of such intensity in youth, There are emotions few persons understand and few experience, but to those few it is granted to rise above the vulgar crowd in all the fine arts. Two other women were in the background in his childhood, the sinister May Gray, the nanny who played tricks upon his person, and always, of course, his mother, whom he heartily loathed. I will cut a swathe through the world or perish in the attempt, this teenage worshipper of Napoleon wrote to her. He did both, dying a hugely celebrated of controversial poet and unambiguously a hero. The world bends to a committed will is a saying and Byron, the seriously fat adolescent who starved himself into celebrated physical beauty from 14 stone to 10 is certainly in all his endeavours in life a proof of that. Cruelly mocked at Harrow for his painful crippled leg, wearing a heavy iron cramp under his corduroy trousers, he became a legendary swimmer swimming the Hellespont in under two hours. Byron indeed took life by the throat, though others, alas, were often bruised. This voracious reader, 4,000 books by the age of 19, the Old Testament, the classics, particularly Greek tragedy, biography, history, novels. Incidentally, in protest at what he perceived as low standards to Cambridge, he suggested that his tame bear be awarded a fellowship. He took his natural narrative gift and his torrential fluency and dashed into poetry with style and speed. I can never recast anything. I am like the tiger. If I miss at first spring, I go back growling to my jungle. But if I do hit, it is crushing. He was hit, actually. His first collection, Hours of Idleness, was savaged by the critics, much of the criticism personal, much of it based on envy. He'd inherited Newstead Abbey, the Gothic masterpiece, when he was 10, and it became formally his on his majority, though, alas, without the money for its upkeep. He'd also taken up his seat in the House of Lords, aged 21, where he was an effective campaigner for not always popular liberal causes. He never lived in a garret. This lord, from whom we shall not hear again, has the sway of Newstead Abbey. Byron, badly wounded by the reviews, went back to his jungle and then pounced. With his clever satire, English bards and Scots reviewers, he mocked his enemies. Then, after two years daring, often dangerous travel, he published the first two cantos of Childe Harold's Pilgrimage, a thrillingly subversive journey through Europe, historically, philosophically, artistically. And age 24, he said, I awoke one morning and found myself famous. That's an understatement. Society went mad for him, always dangerous, as Oscar Wilde found out. He acquired legions of adoring female fans and the fan to end all fans, Lady Caroline Lamb, of whom more later. The poems you are about to hear show Byron's extraordinary versatility. Also, and this is very important, he wrote to a purpose, this subversive who believed in the political power of poetry and whose poetic heroes were Pope and Dryden. His poetry and his life driven, as he said, by his absolute love of liberty and his absolute detestation of Kant. Three demonstrate an intriguing ambivalence about fame, considering he was so focused on it. Stanzas written on the road between Florence and Pisa shows a cynical appreciation of its benefits, which he believed were aphrodisiac. About worldliness, I have not loved the world, nor the world me. The lust for power, which makes the madmen which have made men man. They are both from Child Harold. Darkness would be a surprise to people. It's a Dante-esque nightmare, a precursor, I think, of the wasteland, and it follows the utterly different lyrical masterpiece, She Walks in Beauty Like the Night. It's a morning-after poem with a difference. For Byron, it's chaste. He had returned home late from a party at which he'd seen Mrs. Anne Wilmot dressed in mourning with dark spangles on her dress. He drank brandy. Raised his glass to Mrs. Wilmot's health, walked next morning, and wrote one of the greatest lyrical poems in the language. We end this section appropriately with one of the great goodbye love poems in literature, When We Two Parted. And of the poem itself and of Byron's many partings, we will talk in the next section. But first, two stanzas written on the road between Florence and Pisa.
0: Oh, talk not to me of a name great in story. The days of our youth are the days of our glory, and the myrtle and ivy of sweet two and twenty are worth all your laurels, though ever so plenty. What are garlands and crowns to the brow that is wrinkled? Tis but as a dead flower with may-dew besprinkled. Then away with all such from the head that is hoary, what care I for the wreaths that can only give glory? O oh, fame, if I e'er took delight in thy praises, "'Twas less for the sake of thy high-sounding phrases "'than to see the bright eyes of the dear one discover "'she thought that I was not unworthy to love her. "'There chiefly I sought thee, there only I found thee. "'Her glance was the best of the rays that surround thee. "'When it sparkled o'er aught that was bright in my story, "'I knew it was love, and I felt it was glory. She Walks in Beauty She walks in beauty, like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies, and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes, thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies. One shade the more, one ray the less, had half impaired the nameless grace which waves in every raven tress, or softly lightens o'er her face, where thoughts serenely sweet express how pure, how dear their dwelling place. And on that cheek and o'er that brow, so soft, so calm, yet eloquent, the smiles that win, the tints that glow, but tell of days in goodness spent, a mind at peace with all below, a heart whose love is innocent.
2: Darkness. I had a dream, which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and passless and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day and men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation and all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light and they did live by watchfires. and the thrones the palaces of crowned kings the huts the habitations of all things which dwell were burnt for beacons Cities were consumed, and men were gathered round their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes and their mountain torch. A fearful hope was all the world contained. Forests were set on fire, but hour by hour they fell and faded and the crackling trunks extinguished with a crash, and all was black. The brows of men, by the despairing light, wore an unearthly aspect. As by fits, the flashes fell upon them. Some lay down and hid their eyes and wept, and some did rest their chins upon their clenched hands and smiled and others hurried to and fro, and fed their funeral piles with fuel, and looked up with mad disquietude on the dull sky, the pall of a past world, and then again with curses cast them down upon the dust, and gnashed their teeth and howled. The wild bird shrieked, and terrified did flutter on the ground, and flap their useless wings. The wildest brutes came tame and tremulous, and vipers crawled and twinned themselves among the multitude, hissing, but stingless they were slain for food. And war, which for a moment was no more, did glut himself again. A meal was bought with blood, and each sat sullenly apart, gorging himself in gloom, no love was left, all earth was but one thought, and that was death, immediate and inglorious, and the pang of famine fed upon all entrails, men died, and their bones were tombless as their flesh, the meagre by the meagre were devoured, even dogs assailed their masters, all save one, and he was faithful to a course, and kept the birds and beasts and famished men at bay, till hunger clung them, or the drooping dead lured their lank jaws. Himself sought no food, but with a piteous and perpetual moan, and a quick desolate cry, licking the hand which answered not with a caress, he died the crowd was famished by degrees but two of an enormous city did survive and they were enemies they met beside the dying embers of an altarpiece where had been heaped a mass of holy things for an unholy usage they raked up and shivering scraped with their cold skeleton hands the feeble ashes and their feeble breath blew for a little life, and made a flame which was a mockery. Then they lifted up their eyes as it grew lighter, and beheld each other's aspects, saw, and shrieked, and died. Even of their mutual hideousness they died, unknowing who he was upon whose brow famine had written fiend. The world was void. The populace and the powerful was a lump, seasonless, herbless, treeless, manless, lifeless. A lump of death, a chaos of hard clay. The rivers, lakes and ocean all stood still and nothing stirred within their silent depths. Ships sailorless lay rotting on the sea, and their masts fell down piecemeal. As they dropped, they slept on the abyss without a surge. The waves were dead. The tides were in their grave. The moon, their mistress, had expired before. The winds were withered in the stagnant air, and the clouds perished. Darkness had no need of aid from them. She was the universe.
0: From Child Harold, Canto the Third. Thus far have I proceeded in a theme renewed with no kind auspices. To feel, we are not what we have been, and to deem. We are not what we should be, and to steal the heart against itself, and to conceal with proud caution, love or hate or aught, passion or feeling, purpose, grief or zeal, which is the tyrant spirit of our thought, is a stern task of soul. No matter, it is taught. And for these words thus woven into song, it may be that they are a harmless while. The colouring of the scenes which fleet along, Which I would seize in passing to beguile my breast Or that of others for a while. Fame is the thirst of youth, But I am not so young as to regard men's frown or smile As loss or guerdon of a glorious lot. I stood and stand alone, remembered or forgot. I have not loved the world nor the world me, I have not flattered its rank breath, nor bowed to its idolatries a patient knee, nor coined my cheek to smiles, nor cried aloud in worship of an echo in the crowd. They could not deem me one of such. I stood among them, but not of them, in a shroud of thoughts which were not their thoughts, and still could, had I not defiled my mind, which thus itself subdue. I have not loved the world, nor the world me, But let us part fair foes. I do believe, though I have found them not, that there may be words which are things, hopes which will not deceive, and virtues which are merciful, nor weave snares for the falling. I would also deem uh, others griefs, that some sincerely grieve, that two or one are almost what they seem, that goodness is no name and happiness no dream
2: from Canto the Third. But quiet to quick bosoms is a hell, and there hath been thy bane. There is a fire and motion of the soul which will not dwell in its own narrow being, but aspire beyond the fitting medium of desire. And, but once kindled, quenchless evermore, preys upon high adventure, nor can tire of aught but rest a fever at the core, fatal to him who bears to all who ever bore. This makes the madmen who have made men mad by their contagion, conquerors and kings, founders of sects and systems, to whom add sophists, bards, statesmen, all unquiet things which stir too strongly the soul's secret springs, and are themselves the fools to those they fool. Envied, yet how unenviable! What stings are theirs? One breast laid open were a school which would unteach mankind the lust to shine or rule. Their breath is agitation, and their life a storm whereon they ride to sink at last and yet so nursed and bigoted to strife that should their days surviving perils past melt to calm twilight they feel overcast with sorrow and supineness and so die even as a flame unfed which runs to waste with its own flickering or a sword laid by which eats into itself and rusts ingloriously. He who ascends to mountain tops shall find the loftiest peaks most wrapped in clouds and snow. He who surpasses or subdues mankind must look down on the hate of those below. Though high above the sun of glory glow, and far beneath the earth and ocean spread. Round him are icy rocks, and loudly blow contending tempests on his naked head, and thus reward the toils which to those summits led.
0: When we two parted in silence and tears, half broken-hearted to sever for years, Pale grew thy cheek, and cold, colder thy kiss. Truly that hour foretold sorrow to this. The dew of the morning sunk chill on my brow. It felt like the warning of what I feel now. Thy vows are all broken, and light is thy fame. I hear thy name spoken, and share in its shame. They name thee before me a knell to mine ear. A shudder comes o'er me, why wert thou so dear? They know not I knew thee, who knew thee too well. Long, long shall I rue thee, too deeply to tell. In secret we met, in silence I grieve, That thy heart could forget, thy spirit deceive. If I should meet thee after long years, How should I greet thee? With silence and tears.
1: Byron and the women. When we two parted, it's heartbreaking. And this is going to break your heart, but it is key to Byron. The last verse, which to protect the reputation of Lady Frances Webster, Fanny, the woman in the case, he did not publish. He was a gentleman, certainly, but with absolutely no illusions. And this is the last verse to that heartbreakingly beautiful poem. Then fare thee well, Fanny, now doubly undone, To fall, prove false unto many, as faithless to one. Thou art past all recalling, even would I recall, For the woman, once falling, forever must fall. Lord Byron wrote the young, vivacious, highly intelligent, Married Lady Caroline Lamb, Is mad, bad, and dangerous to know, It's a stunning insight because her obsession with him almost destroyed her. When did she write this? When she first saw him and turned and walked away. Alas, not for long. The famous author of Child Harold was standing in the doorway of her mother-in-law's house, surrounded by his adoring female fans. Women threw themselves at Lord Byron, were thrilled when he caught them, and less happy when he threw them back. He felt no guilt. He was a sexual game-player. Congreve's line comes to mind, "'If there's delight in love, "'tis when I see the heart that others bleed for, bleed for me." Byron notoriously believed, against the mores of his time, that women were as sexually voracious as men. When accused of ravishment for the umpteenth time, he cried, "'I'd like to know who's been ravished.' I've been more ravaged myself than anyone since the Trojan War. (laughs) (laughs) The true voluptuary, and this is a more chilling insight, will never abandon his mind to the grossness of reality. Love, did he ever love? Well, he deeply loved his half-sister Augusta, with whom he almost certainly had a child, and the Countess Guccioli, whom Iris Arrigo called the last attachment. There were also many homosexual liaisons. And it was Caroline Lamb's accusation of homosexuality made in a fit of jealous grief, which was partly responsible for Byron's hounding out of England. The charge was very serious. Uh, Ten years before that this happened, there had been six hangings for homosexuality. There were also rumours of a scandalous ménage à trois. Byron, his half-sister Augusta, and the poet's wife. Yes, Byron had married clever, cool, serious mathematician, Annabella Milbank, my lady of the parallelograms, he called her. Who? (laughs) (laughs) Who, like Caroline Lamb, initially kept her distance. I made no offerings at the shrine, though I shall not refuse acquaintance should it come my way. The marriage quickly produced a daughter, Ada, was also quickly ended and catastrophically. Byron was accused of gross sexual misconduct within the marriage which had a most unauspicious beginning. Byron, waking on his wedding night and seeing the dark red drapes which surrounded the four-poster bed, had cried out in a voice loud enough to wake his bride, My God, I'm in hell. <laughs> oh <God. laughs> Exiled and separated forever from Ada, which he bitterly regretted, he lived a scandalously riotous and promiscuous life in Europe, having sold Newstead Abbey, which thus gave him financial security. Amongst many, many liaisons was one with Claire Claremont, half-sister of Shelley's wife Mary. Claire, with whom he had a daughter, Allegra, from what she described as her ten minutes of passion with Byron, Allegra sadly died age five, had pursued Byron ruthlessly. He was ruthless in return. I never loved her or pretended to love her. But a man is a man, and if a girl of 18 comes prancing at you at all hours, there is but one way. <laughs> <laughs> Through all this personal and sometimes painful turbulence, he remained the dedicated writer and an unbelievably hard worker. He wrote an Armenian dictionary, in a notoriously difficult language to master, wrote two acts of Manfred, third canto of Child Harold, and began his masterpiece, Don Juan of which he said, it's profligate, but is it not life? Is it not the thing? It is indeed. The early cantos were published anonymously. Its fame and its infamy uh, was widespread. Its author, of course, became quickly obvious. (coughs) It's a towering narrative and poetic achievement. Of it, he said, I have no plan. The soul of such writing is its license. It was translated by Goethe and, said Eliot, is the greatest of his poems, adding, it is full of emotion. The emotion is hatred, the hatred of hypocrisy. After the intoxication, wrote Hazlitt, comes Byron's splash of soda water. Now, I've taken from the first canto the lethal pen portrait of Don Juan's parents, Don Jose and Don Ines. Then the incredibly witty episode in which the handsome adolescent Don Juan enters the home of Don Alfonso, alas, 50, and his very young, very pretty wife, Julia. They are delicious, savage stories, witty and perversely wise. And what followed Don Juan? Well, another form of greatness. Convinced that poetry was not enough, Lord Byron, age 36, died from exhaustion, fever and medical incompetence at the height of his fame, and he died a genuine hero, having sailed from Isolonghi to set up and organize with his own fortune the Byron Brigade to help free Greece from the Turks. This is what Charles Dupin wrote of this great act of courage and self-sacrifice. In the full sway of his passions, in the flower of his age, in the bosom of luxury, of pleasure, could at once tear himself from the delights of life, from a voluptuous country, to proceed to a soil impoverished by despotism and desolated by war to land in Greece, to encourage the timid, to animate the brave, to consecrate his fortune to noble purposes, and his genius to painful efforts, to double by union the power of a people whose very existence was in danger, that is what has been done by Lord Byron. Such greatness of mind has no example, and hitherto has had no imitators. The great historian Macaulay coupled Byron's name with that of his hero, Napoleon. Two men have died within our recollection, who had raised themselves each in his own department to the height of glory. One of them died at Longwood, the other at Missolonghi. Byron's death plunged all of Greece and much of Europe into mourning. However, because of his scandalous past, he was refused burial at Westminster Abbey and at St Paul's, and was finally interred in the family vaults near Newstead Abbey, the cortege slowly making its way through towns and villages, thronged by those who came to pay tribute. At her request, Ada, the child he never knew and who, with Charles Babbage, was to become one of the key innovators of the computer, was buried next to him. And in 1969, 145 years after his death, a memorial to him was finally placed in Westminster Abbey. His genius triumphed in the end. But now to Don Juan, First, the story of his parents, Don Jose and Donna Ines.
0: His father's name was José, Don, of course. A true Hidalgo, free from every stain of Moor or Hebrew blood, he traced his source through the most Gothic gentleman of Spain. A better cavalier ne'er mounted horse, or being mounted ere got down again, than José, who begot our hero, who begot... but that's to come, well, to renew.
2: His mother was a learned lady, famed for every branch of every science known in every Christian language ever named, with virtues equaled by her wit alone. She made the cleverest people quite ashamed, and even the good with inward envy groan, finding themselves so very much exceeded in their own way by all the things that she did. Some women use their tongues. She looked a lecture. Each eye a sermon, and her brow a homily, and all in all-sufficient self-director like the lamented late sir samuel romilly the law's expounder and the state's corrector whose suicide was almost an anomaly one sad example more that all is vanity the jury brought their verdict in insanity perfect she was but as perfection is insipid in this naughty world of ours Where our first parents never learned to kiss till they were exiled from their earlier bowers. Where all was peace and innocence and bliss. I wonder how they got through the twelve hours. Don Jose, like a lineal son of Eve, went plucking various fruit without her leave.
0: He was a mortal of the careless kind, with no great love for learning or the learned, who chose to go where'er he had a mind and never dreamed his lady was concerned. The world, as usual, wickedly inclined to see a kingdom or a house are turned, whispered he had a mistress, some said two, but for domestic quarrels, one will do. (laughs) Tis pity learned virgins ever wed with persons of no sort of education, or gentlemen who, though well-born and bred, grow tired of scientific conversation. (laughs) I don't choose to say much upon this head. I'm a plain man, and in a single station. But, oh, ye lords of ladies' intellectual! Inform us truly, have they not hen you all?
2: <laughs> Don Jose and his lady quarrelled. Why? Not any of the men could divine. Though several thousand people chose to try, T'was surely no concern of theirs nor mine. I loathe that low vice-curiosity. But if there's anything in which I shine, tis in arranging all my friends' affairs, not having of my own domestic cares. Don Jose and the Donna Inez led for some time an unhappy sort of life, wishing each other not divorced, but dead. <laughs> they lived respectably as man and wife. Their conduct was exceedingly well-bred and gave no outward signs of inward strife until at length the smothered fire broke out and put the business past all kind of doubt. For Inez called some druggists and physicians and tried to prove her loving lord was mad. But as he had some lucid intermissions, she next decided he was only bad. Yet when they asked her for her depositions, no sort of explanation could be had, save that her duty both to man and God required this conduct which seemed very odd. She kept a journal where his faults were noted and opened certain trunks of books and letters, all which might, if occasion served, be quoted, and then she had all Seville for abettors, besides her good old grandmother who doted The hearers of her case became repeaters, then advocates, inquisitors and judges, some for amusement, others for old grudges. And then this best and weakest woman bore with such serenity her husband's woes. Just as the Spartan ladies did of yore, who saw their spouses killed and nobly chose never to say a word about them more, calmly she heard each calumny that rose and saw his agonies with such sublimity that all the world exclaimed, What magnanimity!"
0: No doubt this patience, when the world is damning us, is philosophic in our former friends. It is also pleasant to be deemed magnanimous, the more so in obtaining our own ends. And what the lawyers call a malus animus, conduct like this by no means comprehends. Revenge in person certainly no virtue, but then is not my fault if others hurt you. And if your quarrels should rip up old stories and help them with a lie or two additional, I'm not to blame, as well you know, no more is anyone else. They were become traditional. Besides, their resurrection aids our glories by contrast, which is what we just were wishing all. And science profits by this resurrection. Dead scandals form good subjects for dissection.
2: Their friends had tried at uh, reconciliation. Then their relations, who made matters worse, to a hard to tell upon a like occasion, to whom it may be best to have recourse. I can't say much for friend or yet relation. The lawyers did their utmost for divorce, but scarce a fee was paid on either side before, unluckily, Don Jose died.
0: The Seduction of Julia.
2: Alfonso was the name of Julia's lord, a man well looking for his years and who was neither much beloved nor yet abhorred. They lived together, as most people do, suffering each other's foibles by accord and not exactly either one or two. Yet he was jealous, though he did not show it, for jealousy dislikes the world to know it.
0: Juan she saw and, as a pretty child, caressed him often. Such a thing might be quite innocently done and harmless-styled, when she had twenty years and thirteen he. But I am not so sure I should have smiled when he was sixteen, Julia twenty-three. These few short years make wondrous alterations particularly amongst sunburnt nations. (laughs) Love, then, but love within its proper limits was Julia's innocent determination in young Don Juan's favour, and to him its exertion might be useful on occasion, and lighted at too pure a shrine to dim its ethereal luster with what sweet persuasion he might be taught by love and her together. I really don't know what, nor Julia either.
2: Her plan she deemed both innocent and feasible, and surely with a stripling of sixteen, not scandal's fangs could fix on much that's seizable, or if they did so, satisfied to mean nothing but what was good, her breast was peaceable. A quiet conscience makes one so serene. Christians have burnt each other, quite persuaded that all the apostles would have done as they did. And if in the meantime her husband died, but heaven forbid that such a thought should cross her brain, though in a dream, and then she sighed, never could she survive that common loss, but just suppose that moment should betide. I say only suppose it inter nos. This should be entre nous, for Julia thought in French, but then the rhyme would go for (laughs) naught.
0: A real husband always is suspicious, but still no less suspects in the wrong place, jealous of some one who had no such wishes, or pandering blindly to his own disgrace, by harboring some dear friend extremely vicious the last indeed infallibly the case. And when the spouse and friend are gone off wholly, he wonders at their vice and not his folly. Thus, parents also are at times short-sighted. Though watchful as the lynx, they ne'er discover that while the wicked world beholds delighted young Hopeful's mistress or Miss Fanny's lover, till some confounded escapade has blighted the plan of twenty years, and all is over. And then the mother cries, the father swears, and wonders why the devil he got heirs. (laughs) It was upon a day, a summer's day, summer's indeed a very dangerous season, And so is spring about the end of May. The sun, no doubt, is the prevailing reason. But whatsoe'er the causes, one may say, and stand convicted of more truth than treason, that there are months which nature grows more merry in. March has its hairs, and May must have its heroine. She sat, but not alone. I know not well how this same interview had taken place, and even if I knew, I should not tell. People should hold their tongues in any case, no matter how or why the thing befell. But there were she and Juan, face to face. When two such faces are so, it would be wise, but very difficult, to shut their eyes. How beautiful she looked. Her conscious heart glowed in her cheek, and yet she felt no wrong. Oh, love, how perfect is thy mystic art, strengthening the weak and trampling on the strong. How self-deceitful is the sagest part of mortals whom thy lure hath led along. The precipice she stood on was immense. So was her creed in her own innocence. She thought of her own strength and Juan's youth, And of the folly of all prudish fears, Victorious virtue and domestic truth. And then, of Don Alfonso's fifty years, <coughs> I wish these last had not occurred in sooth because that number rarely much endears and through all climes, the snowy and the sunny sounds ill in love, whate'er it may in money.
2: When people say I've told you fifty times they mean to scold and very often do. When poets say I've written fifty rhymes they make you dread that they'll recite them too. <laughs> in gangs of fifty, thieves commit their crimes At 50, love for love is rare, tis true. But then, no doubt, it equally as true is, a good deal may be bought for 50 louis. Julia had honor, virtue, truth, and love for Don Alfonso. And she inly swore, by all the vows below to powers above, she never would disgrace the ring she wore, nor leave a wish which wisdom might reprove. And while she pondered this, besides much more, one hand on Juan's carelessly was thrown. Quite by mistake, she thought it was her own.
0: <laughs> Unconsciously, she leaned upon the other, which played within the tangles of her hair, and to contend with thoughts she could not smother, she seemed, by the distraction of her air. T'was surely very wrong in Jewin's mother to leave together this imprudent pair, she who for many years had watched her son so, I'm very certain mine would not have done so. <laughs> the hand which still held Dewan's by degrees gently but palpably confirmed its grasp, as if it said, Detain me if you please. Yet there's no doubt she only meant to clasp his fingers with a pure platonic squeeze, <laughs> She would have shrunk, as from a toad or asp, had she imagined such a thing could rouse a feeling dangerous to a prudent spouse.
2: And Julia sat with June, half embraced and half retiring from the glowing arm, which trembled like the bosom where placed. Yet still she must have thought there was no harm, or else t'were easy to withdraw her waist. But then the situation had its charm. And then, God knows what next, I can't go on. I'm almost sorry that I e'er begun.
0: (laughs) And Julia's voice was lost, except in sighs, until too late for useful conversation. The tears were gushing from her gentle eyes. I wish, indeed, they had not had occasion, but who, alas, can love and then be wise? Not that remorse did not oppose temptation, little still she strove and much repented and whispering I will ne'er consent consented (laughs) so we'll go no more a roving so late into the night though the heart be still as loving and the moon be still as bright for the sword outwears its sheath and the soul outwears the breast And the heart must pause to breathe and love itself have rest. Though the night was made for loving and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more a roving by the light of the moon.
1: That's it. Thank you very much, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. 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 Well done. done. Bye bye. Thank
2: you very much.